on that, I mean, the media thing is what I have discovered is the way that I and my peers in um, in, in brand strategy and, and, and brand management and direction, what have you, um, have learned uh, you know, throughout our careers is that how you activate and manage and, and sustain and disrupt and, and think through a brand as large as you know, any one of the big brands out there, right? Corporate branding, those are the exact same methodologies and considerations you need to apply for a personal brand. And welcome back to another Tuesday, another episode of Talking With Experts podcast with your host, Chris Cowden, otherwise known as The Expert Whisperer. Today, we're going to be learning about a guest who is truly phenomenal. He is unap- unapologetically himself and has created a book called The Wisdom of Gunkles, which represents his story, what he's been, where he's been, how he's interacted with society and how he has created a diverse, inclusive, and well-constructed personal brand. Michael Dumlau has spent more than 20 years in branding and global marketing, has led many teams to success, including uh, the rebranding of a Fortune 500 company, and then working as a senior advisor in governments, intelligence, and defense. Today, you'll find out exactly how to activate a brand so that it's relevant, passion-driven, purpose-driven, consistent, compassionate, curious, inclusive, creative, so much more and also learn about how to interact with buyers who are on their unique own specific journey. So so thank you Michael for joining me on Talking With Experts podcast this week as a marketing executive and author to a new book called The Wisdom of Gunkles which I'm excited to talk to you um, today. So uh, Please uh, introduce yourself and let me know what your real expertise is, and then we can talk more about the book and how you launched it. Thank you so much. So, hello everyone. My name is Michael Dumlau. My pronouns are he and they. I am a two and one plus year career veteran in marketing, um, brand strategy, and communications, um, specifically with a lens in diversity, equity, and inclusion. I've also executed most of my work in fact entirely my all of my work has been in the technology space as well in innovation space um personally i was born in manila philippines during the marcos dictatorship and my family fled that turmoil to sydney australia where this weird accent comes from um, and then at some point we also moved to uh, santa barbara california and then um, in my very, very, very early adulthood, I moved across the country of the United States to settle in Washington, D.C., where I have now resided for more than 20 years. Wow, incredible. And so you you moved all these places. I, I guess that makes you a very resilient person and flexible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would say agile is a, is a, is a good way to, and, and very expert, I think, in understanding what versions of myself um, provide me a certain level of safety and opportunity, which is something that I do talk quite a lot about in the book. Um, and and to speak about the book, so a lot of uh, the ideas that I have been fomenting um, across my my life and specifically across my you know more than twenty year career in these spaces um, is distilled in these stories. Um, so the book, as you mentioned, is called The Wisdom of Gunkles. Um, that usually prompts me to immediately define what a gunkle is. So gunkle is uh, a portmanteau. It's a contraction of the words gay and uncle. So very simply, the wisdom of gay uncles, who I like to think of as everyone's favorite relative, if you're lucky enough to have one. Um, but the way that I use it in the book is I also use it to refer to really any LGBTQ 
mentor, guru, or hero um, that um, is in a position to provide advice and, and guidance and, and insights and wisdom, if you will, to um, a younger person, um, whether that be a niece or nephew. I also introduced a new word, nibbling, which is the gender neutral term um, for nieces and nephews. Um, but this also a lot, um, uh, applies to you know, people who have godchildren, who have guardians, um, who um, have younger cousins, really protégés, right? People that we want to be able to poor, you know, whatever mm -hmm. wisdom we may have gleaned throughout our various lives um, and lived experiences and, and hopefully make their lives a little bit easier than it was for us. Yeah, and you mentioned a few stories. It's more, it's a, it's a book based on stories that has happened over your life. Uh, yes, and not just mine, essentially. So I, I gather the stories of uh, 10 people, myself included. Um, and if I were to distill the thesis, it would be that it's, a collection of stories born of unapologetically queer experiences uh, that give you insights about how to live your full authentic self, um, specifically geared to the black sheep in all of us. Um, I really do speak to, um, I, I would say, repositioning the idea of, a, of the black sheep. Um, you know, if you think about the traditional concept of the black sheep, they are people in our families that are typically cast aside, erased, you know, were considered cautionary tales. Mm -hmm. And LGBTQ people typically, uh, I would say the quintessential black sheep in many families, because so much of what we embody um, and how we live our truth runs counter to many traditional ideas of family, of masculinity and femininity, of mm -hmm. gender, what have you. And what this book hopes to do is use 10 very, very diverse stories from across the world of very, very interesting, diverse people who have traversed this path from trauma to triumph to, uh, to really clearly illustrate how the black sheep is the really, I would say, critical disruptor, defier, and redefiner of traditions, right, that haven't always been um, inclusive. But I, I say that, you know, while these stories are unapologetically queer in their origin, what makes it really, really universal is that it speaks to the black sheep in all of us, you know, mm. I think especially those of us who consider ourselves innovators, entrepreneurs, storytellers, people who want to create change, um, who look at systems and, and processes and resist the idea that things always have to be the way it is, right? I, I say in my book that black sheep are those who resist the idea of it's always been that way because mm -hmm. to always progress and live um, as if it's always been that way has never really you know, allowed us to evolve as a, as a society. Um, and I see the black sheep as a critical role, not just in families, but communities and society by extension, uh, a critical role in helping us really become better and, and, and become more inclusive, to become more diverse, and maybe question why we were black sheep to begin with. Yeah, and I was having a conversation with somebody who has a fashion uh, podcast and she was, she was talking about all these things and, um, I've lost my chain of thought, but um, <laughs> let me try and think. She was talking about. No, I've lost it. I've, I've lost it completely. This is nuts. This has never happened before. But okay, so you kind of did talk about. I've lost it. I've lost it. But anyway, tell me more about the book, and hopefully, I can get my um, chain of thought okay. back. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so uh, the book journey started really when I was um, 
helping a cousin of mine um, who is Filipino um, and is married to an African-American man um, and have then they have two beautiful biracial half Filipino half African-American daughters um, who I'm very proud to say are my goddaughters and I am but one of their guardians um, and I was helping them really navigate last year 2020 um, and between you know uh, the the Me Too movement, the rise in anti-API hate and anti-API violence, and of course the Black Lives Matter movement and the global awakening to racial and social inequities and injustices and the need to, to address them. Um, you know, as, as, as young Asian Black women, they felt particularly attacked on all sides and they were starting to really question really their worth and their identity. And uh, my cousin and her husband realized that out of everyone in the family, I was, I specifically was uniquely equipped as a queer femme presenting brown immigrant who has, as I mentioned earlier, traversed you know, many, many different contexts in which I live my identity from the Philippines to Australia, to California, to now the East Coast. Um, and I, I was uniquely equipped um, you know, as a queer person specifically to really help these young women understand their worth, affirm mm -hmm. their value, affirm you know, their strength and their identity, and to not let everything that was, that was, that was happening around them, in some cases to them, um, diminish you know, their humanity and diminish their worth. And so um, as I was you know, helping these young women sort of like navigate these, these, um, these dialogues, these ideas, these concepts, these, the news, just the news itself, also in the context right of lockdown and being stuck mm. at home and really the only people that you were interacting with was either the news or your family and they didn't they weren't always equipped right to have the conversation um i i realized that there was a lot of things uh, that were being said that needed to be documented and my cousin noted that there were a lot of people who may need have need to hear um, some of the things that we were talking about um and so what i did was i gathered not just my own words but also the insights and the and the experiences and the stories of nine other beautiful human beings that I am very fortunate to have uh, been acquainted with and, and continue to be friends with. Um, and these include, um, uh, one is uh, one really, really beautiful story is one of what I call the alchemist in the, in the book. Um, they are a non-binary Paraguayan drag artist um, who's also my hairstylist, who uh, <laughs> tells the story, a beautiful story about how, like an alchemist, they use these antiquated ideas of masculine and feminine in their very conservative Catholic um, South American uh, culture. And they disrupt it entirely, mix it all together to create a beautiful new identity and gender expression. And in doing so, they create space for their nieces and nephews, and specifically their one niece to come out as queer themselves. Um, I also tell the beautiful story of this African-American um, wheelchair using um, academic in Ohio who talks about how despite living his entire life in a wheelchair, um, he has traveled to more countries and more places in the world than anyone else I know. And I say in the book that despite living the world in a wheel, living life in a wheelchair, they have learned how to fly. And, mm. and they talk about how they want to empower their um, by also biracial African-American, um, half white, half African-American niece to understand that sometimes you need to leave what is comfortable to discover who you are. Um, and then I tell the beautiful story of uh, my own husband um, and his experience as a Peruvian man who escaped terrorism and, and, and huge turmoil in Peru um, and how they learned to question everything around them, question authority, question mm -hmm. their faith, question their family's teachings because they learned from a very early age that 
nothing is ever never nothing should ever be left just the way it is right and they are very much the anchor of this idea that you need to grow up learning how to question things so that you can make your own decisions about how what happiness means to you what success means to you right and that's it's precisely the kind of story they want to sorry the kind of lesson they want to impart on their niece mm-hmm. um and so and throughout the story there's throughout the book there are 10 stories that are anchored in what I call these archetypes. Um, I call them the pantheon of queer wisdom. And I find that there's absolutely, you know, it's, well, like I said, it's, it's, you know, it's very, very unapologetically queer, but the lessons are incredibly universal. Mm. Um, you know, there's another one um, that I, I call, I call him the, the chameleon. Um, he's an African-American U.S. Um, Army veteran who, was the uh, the the child of two um, Southern Baptist preachers of the only black church in Anchorage, Alaska, and growing up as a queer black man in the whitest city in the whitest state in America, arguably, um, surrounded by snow, <laughs> um, they had to learn how to code switch and how to navigate, you know, sort of this very treacherous sort of negotiation of, you know, how much of me is safe in a certain context. Mm-hmm. And uh, the beautiful part of this story is, is by the end, they come to this conclusion that they will never dim their light. So they become beacons for those lost in the dark, especially other African-American people in their community, in their family that haven't always had an example of what it means to be black, to be queer, to be out, to be a veteran, to be Mm. somebody who can still be all those things and still be proudly who they are. Um, And their entire story is about, you know, what does it mean when you stop code switching, when you negotiate code switching differently Um, and, and for me, I think that's something that is highly applicable for many of us who have had to, um, you know, negotiate spaces without the kind of privileges and powers that would not, um, you know, that would, that would mean that we were constantly having to negotiate safety, right, in, in mm-hmm. a lot of these spaces. And I feel like that's the kind of story that I wanted to make sure I, cre- I captured and elevated in this book, um, because I feel like it's something that a lot of people need to hear. Yeah, and a lot of people, I guess, uh, wear masks, not not visible masks, but you know they 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 hide their insecurities and um, they don't. I guess they they have they haven't done a self discovery journey yet. They haven't found themselves. Um, right. I talking from a bit of experience. I did some traveling in Australia for one year and worked worked in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. And I and I did a few things that empowered me. Almost, I don't know if you've heard of Stephen Tunick, but he does um, nude modeling in the streets of Melbourne and Sydney. Yeah. And and I was one of their models. And, Congratulations! Uh, yeah, so so I grew in body confidence that I'd never had before. So I was always quite shy and timid to be mm-hmm. in front of anybody naked, but to do it in front of a whole street that just gave me so much power and mm-hmm. you know it's like I'm proud of who I am as a person so that was a part of self-discovery and then when you spoke about the disabled man for mm-hmm. for the last seven or eight years I've had limited mobility and mm-hmm. I've I've had I've experienced what it's like for people to stare at you on the street when you're in a wheelchair and um, it's not it's not the best best of feelings I can walk now so I am mm-hmm. fitter but to be excluded from situations 
I guess maybe you have that same experience. Absolutely. Um, and actually, um, one thing that uh, one of the beautiful lines out of the chapter, I call him the explorer. Uh, his chapter is called The Explorer. And uh, he has a line that, uh, a quote actually, that he mentioned, he remembers saying to his goddaughter um, about, you know, what happens when as a as a, a queer black man in a wheelchair traveling through the world, or as as in terms of his daughter, like a, a black woman traveling the world, what if people stare? She's like, what if people stare at me? And what he says is, let them stare. Mm. Let them stare and see that it is possible to exist in this world and to travel through this world and to explore this world as a queer black person in a wheelchair, as a black woman. Like it, they need to mm. see that it is possible and not only yeah. possible, necessary and i love that i love that 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 reclamation of agency and power mm. to say that you cannot exclude me from this vital experience of exploring the world so that i can explore myself just because of your discriminatory notions of what i can and cannot do as somebody in a wheelchair as somebody of my skin color as somebody of my gender yeah. i love that yeah and it's inspiring i, I think um my form of exercise is hand cycling so uh, mm. it's like a tricycle I sit down and I'm pedaling with my arms mm. uh, and I've just done a, a momentous task uh, I set myself a goal to do 300 miles in a month wow. for, for, for cancer research and I today I passed the 300 mark so I, I'm chuffed and it's, it's almost the end of September but I've had a lot of people stare and some people that are in wheelchairs mm. I've been fist pumping them along the way, but I've given them the inspiration to find a hand cycle as well and get out and not make excuses about, you know, being in a wheelchair or have a limited mobility. So being that inspiration and that innovator or that person who wants to make change, mm -hmm. um, I, yeah, I bow to you because you're doing the right thing. And, you know, you've inspired me yeah, as a non-queer, but, you uh, the book is about the book is for everybody but absolutely yeah you've inspired me and what I've also one thing that I also um, you know consistently say throughout the book and another consistent theme is this idea of a chosen family and I specifically bring that up because I want to make sure that people know that everyone in my book who has achieved a level of triumph that they define for themselves what that word triumph means and it's always been you know some sort of path away from some very very traumatic things that have happened to them um you know in their families um in just in their day-to-day -day, right and um the only way that they've been able to do that is by creating this chosen family around them and then i have actually also found that that has become a very unique universal um thing that a lot of people who may not necessarily identify as queer but they still see the power in that, that you can choose who your family is, you can choose who you bring around you. Um, and, you know, when I when I do some of my talks and some of my workshops, especially when I'm talking about the book, I, I've come, I've started to begin them by asking the audience, raise your hand if you've ever disappointed your parents by your life decisions. <laughs> Right. And inevitably, <laughs> everyone does. And those that don't, I say, you're lying. So, <laughs> because, because I think every one of us, you know, have had to face a point where we have to live our own dreams, not the dreams of others for, you know, that have, you know, whether it's our parents, whether it's a community, whether it's our, um, our ancestors, right? Um, we, have, we have to tread our own paths. And sometimes that means that we have to, you know, go through the heartbreak of breaking away from those that we were taught were meant to affirm us and support us and love us. And that is not to say that biological families um, are not that, but I think the book also demonstrates that biological families are not the only source for that, 
right? And that we have to give space for this idea of a chosen family, which in my research I discovered is actually very uniquely attributed to the LGBTQ community because of all communities, LGBTQ communities are, are representative of a lot of people who have been just straight out rejected by their families, by cultures, by their faiths in particular, and have forced them into these communities, into these chosen families where they become the only source that um, it, from which they they draw that affirmation and that nurturing and that love and the safe space to explore who they are. And, you know, however we find these chosen families, you know, I feel like we need to understand that they are family, that they are one and for all. They are absolutely family and just as much a family as they are, um, regardless of the fact that you're not necessarily bound by blood, right? Yeah. Um, and I feel like particularly in, in, in places of work, um, you know, that becomes even that much more important, especially if so much of our life centers around where we work, you know, if so much of our day to day, um, you know, is centered around who we work with and who we associate with in that context. I think it's something that becomes like a challenge in many places, you know, that I'm not necessarily saying that you form a family with everyone that you work with, but the yeah. idea is that you create spaces where um, you know, where you are intending to create that kind of affirmation, safe space and nurturing, right? Uh, where you are seen as a human being. And, you know, for a lot of us, if we don't get that from our families, we go elsewhere, right? We go, we go to other people, we go to our mates, we go to our classmates, we go to sometimes our workmates, we go to places. And the book is absolutely a testament of the integrity and the necessity of the chosen family to help give us that safe space to be who we are. Yeah, it's uh, those family values and being accepted in a community so i'm kind of creating a family here so you're mm -hmm. part of the podcast family and, <laughs> and the the values that i'm trying to create inside the group are inclusion acceptance uh, contribution integrity trustworthy there is tr transparency they're all part of the family and, and lots of love so um, I'll be inviting you into the, it's on Facebook, but it's a I love it. private community on there. Awesome. Um, so we've kind of talked about the book, but I want to go mm -hmm. and talk about the brand. Let's go with how you got the book to launch first. So I know I saw crowdfunding, crowdsourcing. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about that strategy and how it worked for you? Absolutely. So um, how I got the actual book sort of process started and the publishing, um, you know, um, collaboration and, and that whole deal uh, was I actually I myself was being interviewed as an expert for a colleague's book. And uh, I just asked them, like, how did you get this? Because I and then I confessed how I've, I myself have always wanted to write a book ever since mm -hmm. I was a child. My mom actually reminds me particularly these days since I published the book I was like oh great you finally lived out the dream I had for you I'm like okay well, thanks <laughs> um, apparently she has always encouraged me to write a book and and has reminded me that I myself have always wanted to write a book so when this opportunity um, arrived where I had you know I was being interviewed um, you know for this book I just asked my colleague and she gave me the contact information for her publisher and I submitted, you know, some pitches and uh, they liked them enough to, you know, to agree to, um, to helping me publish this book. Um, and then from there, I discovered the world of publishing and the world of editors and deadlines. And, um, and one thing that a lot of people have noted is that I actually ended up writing this book very, very quickly, at least in, you know, from the outset. And I did, I mean, to be very, very fair, um, you know, from pitch. So, you know, I pitched, I guess, in late August, early September, I got approval to move forward in September, and then I started the process in October. Um, and then they gave me an editor, they gave me also a class. So I was part of a class of authors, first time authors, to help us understand really what, what is this? 
what can we get out of it? How does the economics of it work, which is absolutely fascinating? And how does the marketing and branding work? And then just literally the rigor of actually writing a book, which is very different than writing an article, writing an essay, writing an email or a Facebook post. Like it's very different. <laughs> and there were several authors, you know, that were famous for their social media content and they had to completely rethink. I'm like, you're really good in 140 characters. You're really good in like three paragraphs in a short form, blah, blah, blah. But now you have to write minimum 50,000. No, no, what was it 50,000 words? Yes, you have to, we, we were, we had a minimum threshold of I think between 40 to 50,000 words or something like that. And we had to meet that threshold, which, you know, was, was difficult because, and it was, I'll say this, it was difficult not because it was hard reaching that level. Mm -hmm. It was difficult keeping it to that level once you really got started with the concept of the thesis. Um, I will say this book definitely went through a transformation. And this is where I'll get into the brand in a minute, is that when I first pitched this book, it was meant to be one of those like fun, sassy, like coffee table books that you get at a place like an Urban Outfitters, one of those like mm -hmm. chic, like little like, uh, you know, interior design places. But there was going to be filled with, you know, sassy little bon mots that emanated from cool little line drawings of suave gay men holding up martini glasses saying, yes, girl, you got this. Um, and it was meant to be just almost like a cross between like a self-help book and a makeup tutorial. Mm. And then as I was, you know, trying to gather experts and interviewing these experts, um, they wouldn't actually automatically tell me, say their makeup you know, tip or their, or their financial tip or their life tip. They started talking about their, their coming out process. But they started talking about like why as queer people, their specific idea or viewpoint into XYZ was unique, which I loved. And that sent me into a completely different concept, which was less of a self-help book and really more about an, really an anthology of biographies mm. that captured these incredibly, you know, beautiful stories of unrelenting humanity and how that in of itself is what yields the wisdom. And so from a brand perspective, I had to completely shift away from even the distribution model of like, oh yeah, we're gonna go into an urban outfit. We're gonna go into a chic little, you know, chic little like interior design place. And instead it became about students and teachers. And, um, and now for like, for example, actually right after this blog and right after this podcast interview, I'm going to a high school um, a couple of miles away from me to talk to their Gay Straight Alliance. Um, I'm also now doing speaking tours uh, specifically, not just with corporate um, diversity, equity and inclusion um, organizations and employee resource groups, but I'm now also doing it with, uh, with, with organizations uh, focused on social equity, um, civil, uh, civil rights and what have you. Um, and it's all about really creating this, di this bigger dialogue about, about social justice, about how to create a world where the people in this book don't have to, you know, the, the traumas that they experience will not necessarily perpetuate mm. right in our societies. Yeah. It became a much deeper, more meaningful book, which changed my brand, changed this, the content strategy, changed the editors even, and changed ultimately the marketing strategy. And I will say as a veteran marketer, that meant that I had to pivot very quickly. I had to reassess my audience and really reassess my positioning statement, right? Um, mm -hmm. And in many cases, it actually made me more, I would say attractive um, in the sense of, and, and unique. It made me more unique because, um, you know, I then started to occupy a very unique space in literature, in, in creative nonfiction, in biographies and, and anthologies um, as somebody who was, kind of like creating this like new space between biography, memoir, self-help, and, and, and specifically in this space of, you know, LGBTQ, mostly people of color. So many people in my book mm -hmm. are people of color, they are immigrants, they have people, there are people with, with disabilities, both visible and non-visible. Um, and many of them represent stories that really aren't representative of what may, many people have been 
taught to think is the LGBT experience. Mm. Um, so that forced me really to go through, um, you know, a really different path um, than I had expected. Um, but ultimately, and that also helped to inform the, the pre-sale campaign. So the reason why we did a pre-sale campaign is that's actually something that was part of the deal that I made with the publisher, was that we wanted to prove to the world that there was a market for this. And yeah. what that forced me to do as a marketer was really hone in on my positioning statement, really hone in on my audience, and really hone in on what this book is intended to do, and more specifically, who it is for. And when I started saying things like, this book is for the black sheep and all of us, this book is for those that have uh, you know, felt excluded but wanna change the systems that exclude them. This book is for not just obviously the gunkles that are reflected in the title and the people who have gunkles in their lives, but it's also for people who would want a gunkle in their yeah. life. You know, somebody with these kinds of experiences that can guide them through whatever aspect of their life um, exists. And, and just being able to articulate that more clearly made sure that it, it forced me to look at schools, made me look at civil organizations and nonprofits, and maybe look at uh, corporate, you know, um, employee resource groups. It made me look at completely different audiences. I mean, completely different marketing tactics, even. Um, and and the what ended up happening was that because I was able to pivot really quickly and redefine my positioning, my marketing tactics, my audience, and my overall messaging statements around the book itself. I was able to exceed my pre-sale goal by more than 200%. Mm -hmm. And not only that, amass a newsletter with more than 500 emails that are growing every day, um, as well as contacts in industries and communities that I never would have touched if I had just kept on this like fun, sassy little book. Yes. Company, right? you, so as so for somebody who uh, would like to write a book in the future, and I'm sure for some of the listeners, they would like to write a book as well. Do you recommend that they have more than one audience and that they're not fixed on a particular subject, but they're happy for the subjects or the stories to, or the ideas to come up and for it to evolve? So I've been likening the process of writing a book to trying to solve a jigsaw puzzle with pieces made out of water. <laughs> and I say that purposefully because the, the frame is set, right? The idea should be set, but how you get there is inevitably going to change depending on your interviews, depending on the research that you do. And even just the process of writing, as structured as I was in the beginning, it kept changing because the stories kept informing new ideas. The people kept, so I ended up interviewing 25 people and chose 10. And that in of itself forced me to completely change the book even as I was changing it. So, but what I had was a core idea, right? I knew this book was first and foremost going to serve my LGBTQ community. And that was my number one sort of audience. And by, by maintaining you know, sort of like this core truth of like, at the end of the day, who is this book for? This book is for people like me. And that's what I wanted to, because it's true It's the, It's the. true to who I am. It's true to the stories. It's true to who I want this to ultimately serve. But the smart thing was to bring in other voices that would then allow me to speak to, um, you know, Latin and South American uh, you know, audiences, to uh, audiences in the disability community, to audiences in the transgender non-binary community, audiences in the drag community, audiences in the academic community. Like, I very purposefully chose stories and a content strategy that would allow me to go into the peripheries of, um, of other communities while still maintaining this very true sort of like line of like, this is at the end of the day for LGBTQ audiences, mm -hmm. acknowledging also that LGBTQ audiences have a tendency to set trends, have a tendency to articulate culture, to articulate sort of like new ways of talking about things. And so, you know, I was also lucky in the sense that I specifically chose a community that is known to 
automatically, I, I would say, extend influence, cultural mm -hmm. influence, um, you know, beyond just their own community. So I would say like a recommendation is, yes, I think have a very specific audience in mind, but be smart about who those audiences ultimately touch. I would say keep a book, you know, focused. So my book is very, very focused on, mm -hmm. you know, uh, queer people in our relationship with family, right? But how I told those stories and how I researched it was to make sure that I brought in intersections, intersections with race, intersections with disability, intersections with nationality, intersections with gender identity and gender expression, so that while the core truth and the core ideas around queer people and family, it's about immigration and family. It's about um, you know gender expression and it's and how it manifests in conservative families. It's about faith. I also have a lot of stories about how this all happens in faith communities and, and in faith traditions. So that also brings in another audience. And I think that's the, the mark, frankly, of, of good branding and good marketing is that you're able to have a very specific audience and a specific positioning statement with a very, very specific idea of mm -hmm. what your brand is. But if you structure it in a really, really good way, you will automatically have a halo effect that technically you intended from the beginning. Yes. So... Uh... And on that conversation, how do you, what are the, like the fundamentals of a content strategy and, a, and a, what is a, for me, for someone who doesn't know it, right. uh, what's a positioning statement? Right. So very, very fundamental thing about positioning statements. And now we're getting into my marketing classes, which is great. Um, so very fundamental thing about my positioning statement is the ability and the necessity to say no. You have to be perfect for someone or something in a very specific place and time and context, which means you automatically have to assume that you're going to be not perfect for something else. Mm -hmm. To have a very, very good positioning statement, you have to be willing to say no. Almost saying no to what and identifying what this is not <laughs> is going to be what's going to make what you are that much more powerful. So for example, my book is not a self-help guide. My book is not a coffee table sassy, you know, thing that you find in an interior design coffee table book. You know, it, it is not, it is not a memoir. It is not a traditional memoir. It is not blah, 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 right? And so yeah. I actually, in many ways, when I started to really, I'd say crystallize and cement my concept for this book and how I was writing it, I had to very, very clearly identify what it is not and who it is not for, right? And so by doing that, and that is true of any brand, every brand ever I had that I have ever touched, whether it was the Fortune 500 that I completely rebranded to many of the clients and to the, my own small businesses, to my own nonprofits, to all the things that all the all the places where I have had to bring these ideas of, you know, of really, really good brand strategy. Um, and also, by the way, not good brand strategies, how I've also learned yeah. <laughs> you know, how not to do things. Um, you know, a lot of this is really based on like being very, very clear about who you want to target and who you want to talk to and how you want to talk to them. And also being smart about how you know that audience wants to be talked with and engaged. Mm. So for example, there's a reason why I created a book that prioritizes the um, and preferences the voices and the narratives of uh, not just LGBTQ people, but specifically queer people of color, you know, black uh, and, and, and immigrant and, and, and people who represent, um, you know, certainly that marginalized identity and those minorities, because I knew, A, that it would differentiate me from a lot of other books out there mm. that are more, more representative of, frankly, white, specifically white cisgendered heterosexual, white cisgendered gay men or white cisgendered heterosexual men. Like it, it, I needed to differentiate myself. So part of positioning also is a differentiation, right? Mm. Um, 
but in that differentiation, you know, by being able to say that this book, um, you know, the stories are primarily, um, you know, reflective of the queer BIPOC, um, you know, people of color and immigrant experience, I was also making sure that those within those spaces, I was both specific, but also broad, not just broad, but very specific to who I will bring in, right? Yeah. So South America, it is Hispanic Heritage Month in America right now. And I was really smart in that I brought, I, had, I have three stories, actually three and a half stories of the Hispanic heritage um, represented. So was I able to market in Hispanic heritage? Absolutely. October, yeah. which is when I'm launching my tour, also happens to be both LGBTQ and Filipino History Month. So do I have stories about both the LGBTQ experience and the Filipino and by extension, the Asian Pacific Islander immigrant experience? 100%, mm. um, you know, and soon I will also, and I also have stories that represent, you know, the veteran experience, certainly the black and disability experience. So I'm able to then extend, right? In a very, very authentic way through these very real stories, how I can then start to broaden my brand reach while still maintaining a consistent tone and the truth of the brand. That was really complex. And I like that you, you know, you, you mentioned water because it's fluid and you can come up with, you can be a lot more creative with your ideas when you're not structured and fixed on a certain thing. And uh, it's really clever that you've, you've, you kind of thought about, okay, well, when is this event on the calendar? When is this event on the calendar? When should I launch? Those are certain. Uh, I didn't even consider that when I launched the podcast, but maybe for season two, I'll think about how I can do something crazy to. Well, it's not, but it has to be authentic, right? So I authentically entered, um, mm. you know, social media conversations about Hispanic Heritage Month because I have three stories about LGBTQ people of Hispanic heritage. Mm. Um, I actually technically started launch, I would say soft launching conversations about this book during Asian Pacific Islander month in May, and then went gangbusters during Pride. I mean, Pride, I had like eight conversations. <laughs> eight, like, and then um, the big next milestone, I think at least in the LGBT community is um, October 11th is National Coming Out Day in the United States. Um, and so I've already set up several speaking engagements there because I have a coming out story literally in every single chapter. And it's different. Every coming out story is slightly different. It speaks to a different way of coming out. Actually, I have one story that where the um, where the character, so where the person I interviewed has not come out and did not come out. And oh. I needed to honor, you know, and their story is actually really, really beautiful. They speak to, that story speaks to um, every single secretly LGBTQ uncle or auntie that we never really like, are they, weren't they, right? It's like yeah. <laughs> a person who never had a wife, right? But always had a male best friend that was their roommate or that one auntie who was considered a spinster, but always had like the same travel companion, strangely. And they all lived together as roommates, <laughs> so to speak. And, you know, all their entire life experience is like, you know, predicated on what I call a, um, a protective ambiguity. Because frankly, to be, to say you were who you are would, would have, you know, exposed them to violence. And so that alone also allowed me then to reach out and, and, and tell a story and have a very authentic connection to an entire generation of LGBTQ people mm. that, you know, I can now also authentically speak to. And it's, a, it's, it's, our, pre it's our ancestors, it's our predecessors, yeah. it's people, um, you know, who may still to this day, like the person in, in my book, is not comfortable or has asserted that they will not stick to a label the way that many of us in my community have. 
um, because for them, freedom from a label is what identifies their identity. And I love that. It also speaks frankly to the fluidity of identity, the fluidity and the beautiful diversity of the LGBTQ community, um, that we can also have those people who live and love the way they want to, right? Regardless of what label they or society may insist, you know, be placed upon them. Yeah, labels are... Yes, <laughs> Dyslexia, ADHD, yeah. other, dis- other disabilities, queer, you know, why yeah. can't we just be a non-label society? It would, it would make things right. a lot more easier. But yeah. I think the reality is, is like we still need those labels because those labels give us benefits. They give us accommodations. They give yeah. us, we'll still live in a, you know, in a system where the labels are necessary because for whatever, for whatever reason, right, the labels exist to counteract the discriminations that created them to begin with. <laughs> yeah, I guess that, that makes sense. Yeah. So um, for like, let's just talk about branding again. Um, what are some of the common mistakes people make when they're, when they're starting out? Um, or if they've already started out, what, what as a marketer, as somebody who's worked in branding for many years, what do you see the the average entrepreneur or business owner mistakes? What are they making? Basically, back to the positioning thing. I think number one is when you try to be everything to everyone. If you are everything to everyone, then you are nothing. <laughs> Basically, like you're too much, right? Yeah. You're too much. Um, and I think a lot of companies and a lot of, especially if you're a product, you try to sell to everyone. You, you, I mean, and at the end of the day, that is fundamentally one of the goals, right? Is you want to be able to get your product or get something into the hands of every single household across the country or whatever, right? But I think what is smarter and frankly more realistic is that you start off, especially when you're starting off, you start off with a very specific idea of who your perfect customer is, right? And who your perfect um, you know, and then more importantly, like I said earlier, who your not perfect customer is, like, and who, yes. especially if you think about, you know, many of us, especially those of us who are in small, who, who run small businesses, we're resource constrained, not just constrained in terms of, you know, finances, but also time and, mm. and, 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 and probably staffing and bodies. Many of us, we probably are operating, you know, businesses by our own, you know, and that means that, you know, there's only so many hours in a day, so many money, you know, so much money to spend and, and so much of you to give that you need to be really focused on who you give yourself to, who you, sorry, okay. coming on right now, <laughs> um, who you give your yourself to, who you give your brand to, on which and where, right? And especially when you're starting the communications and marketing space, you know, there are so many different platforms out there, but your audience is not necessarily on them. So you have mm-hmm. to be very clear about not only who your audience is or who your customer is, who your client is, but how do they communicate? Where do they communicate? How often do they communicate? What conversations are they passionate about? Um, and how do you enter those in a really unique and authentic way? Um, another you know, clear truth in a branding, especially in, in this day and age, is that a brand is not what you say it is. It is what your customers say it is. And more importantly, what your customers share you know, in terms of perceptions. They might not necessarily say or think that that's what it is, but if they're sharing a perspective on your brand, at the end of the day, that's what your brand is, especially if that's ultimately going to, you know, take over the perception of your brand that over what you want the perception of your brand to be. So part of it is making sure that you're authentically engaging in dialogue to begin with. Um, and, and something that once again is true to who you are, but is also something that serves a very specific audience and customer base that you're identifying. 
And then all, from there, it's about priority, priority, priority. You cannot do everything all at once and you shouldn't be doing everything all at once. You shouldn't be launching on every, like for myself, like I very purposefully you know, decided to launch on very, very specific platforms. A, because I know that those are platforms that my audiences um, will, will see my content in positively and that I can, you know, realistically sort of engage with them in, but also because at the end of the day, like I can't, you know, even if I had a team of, of hundreds, I can't expect us to necessarily you know, exist on every single platform mm. all the time, all at once. There has to be a cadence. I mean, I've led marketing teams um, that are as small as just myself to marketing teams as large as 60 people. And even in the most recent marketing team that I led, um, where we had a very, very large engine of people, um, you know, to, to promote content, to create content, we still focused, we still absolutely focused on exactly how we were, on who we were talking to, how we were talking to them, where we were talking to them on which platforms and even when, right? Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, making sure that we weren't just saying the same message in the same way over and over again, but also acknowledging the fact that, you know, each of our audiences, even my own audiences for this book are in different journeys and how they relate to my brand. Like encouraging somebody to, just look at my website and to look at the, uh, and, and to look and to consider this book, um, my message to them and how I communicate to them is very different than somebody who's just bought 25 books and would mm -hmm. like to, you know, to be an evangelist on behalf of this brand. Um, same thing goes, I think, with, with even, you know, a small brand to a large brand. You know, you have to be very specific about what you're saying, when you're saying it, and, and not only to whom, but also on what part of the journey in their interaction with your brand they are. Yeah, because people, customers or new experts have a different experience of the podcast or mm -hmm. from my perspective, um, or the start from the start, but didn't want to be interviewed and they have a different experience. The listeners might have a different. So when your customers or clients give testimonials, whatever mm -hmm. they say, you've got to really listen to what they like about the brand, um, what they like about how you interacted or with them and what results you got them. Because those are the things that will make the brand stronger if you improve on those things. Absolutely. And, and absolutely even more so, probably listen to what they didn't like. Listen to you know the feedback, as difficult and heartbreak as it may be to discover that, that they didn't like something <laughs> yeah. that you poured your heart and soul into. That's absolutely critical because it, it, it allows for growth. Right. Mm -hmm. You have to, and the thing about brands, oh, the other thing, very, very clean, very, very probably even the bigger rule, bigger, even bigger than positioning, the bigger rule about <laughs> brands is that it can never ever be monolithic and static. Brands have to evolve, right? I mean, they have to evolve you know, strategically. They can't evolve every single day because then you have no consistency. Um, there is still definitely much, very much like a, a need for brands to have a level of consistency across a period of time, but they can never be static. You know, mm -hmm. even in how you are creating, you know, consistent experiences, cons consistent strategies, consistent, you know, sort of look and feel and whatnot, you still have to allow for a level of agility. Let's, say, let's call that agility, right? Yep. In, in how you um, maybe activate or express that brand, especially as you start to move into different markets. And that's yep. frankly like the biggest sort of like push and pull with a brand. I, I was the uh, uh, a director of brand, um, you know, for for a firm um, and, and have been a director of brand for many, many organizations. And, um, you know, part of being a brand director, brand manager, brand strategist is, is, is living and negotiating this very, very fascinating, sometimes challenging space between an enforcer and being an empowerer. Mm. Somebody who has to enforce guidelines and strict rules 
and 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 just to make sure that you're protected there's, there's an element of protecting a brand and you protect the brand by making sure that you're consistent in how you respond and how you express it but at the same time you also want to empower either the people who express the brand for you or people who are engaging your brand you want to empower them to adapt that brand for themselves right because mm-hmm. because if you want your brand ultimately to 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 be adapted into how somebody lives their life and how somebody activates their decisions or changes their behavior, right? Um, then you have to allow for a level of, of, of versatility and agility in how that brand is then something that they can adapt, you know, for their own experience, for their own reality, for their own work, you know, or for their, or how they, and I feel, I feel that's, that's where the push and pull and that, that really beautiful and incredibly achingly frustrating aspect of branding is, is that constant sort of like enforcement versus empowering dialectic. It's good to talk to somebody who's got a wealth of knowledge on brand, because these are things I haven't even considered Mm -hmm. uh, for the podcast or even for, uh, what I do with the podcast, you know, uh, so really interesting. Um, and I'll be going through uh, the the transcription of this to, to really take it in. Uh, I'd like to ask if there's like three actionable tips or strategies that people can do from today when they listen to it today, what is it that they should do for their brand or uh, for themselves? Well- yeah. Well, actually, so so on that, I mean, the immediate thing is what I have discovered is the way that I and my peers in um, in in brand strategy and, and and brand management and direction, what have you, um, have learned, uh, you know, throughout our careers is that how you activate and manage and and sustain and disrupt and and think through a brand as large as, you know, any one of the big brands out there, right? Corporate branding, those are the exact same methodologies and considerations you need to apply for a personal brand. Mm. I have find that it is very, very similar, whether it is, and it's, you know, a typical brand process is like, you know, you start with research, right? So, solid research, then you, then you go into strategy, and then from strategy, you go into activation. And then throughout all of that, you're constantly monitoring however you are measuring it, you're constantly measuring it and, and, and adapting it, you know, um, strategically and how you can improve on those measures or define new measures, you know, you know in, the, in the process. That is certainly true. That's a very, very high level statement of like how like a typical sort of corporate brand is executed, but it is absolutely the same when it comes to personal brand. So, you know, I would say that, you know, when you're, when people are listening to this, while, you know, earlier I may have been talking about, you know, how to activate a brand for a, for a small business or for a large mm-hmm. corporation, those same considerations, right, about positioning, right? I was talking about positioning my book. Um, you should also be considering about what, how you're positioning yourself, right? Mm-hmm. What are you saying no to, to truly empower what you're saying yes to? Um, so that's, you know, definitely one thing to say is that corporate branding and personal branding are basically one and the same. Yeah. Um, but because it is one and the same, it also means that you really have to focus, especially if it's just you, right? If you're the only one focused on your personal brand, you don't, you don't have a team of people, you know, telling you who and what you should be, which you probably shouldn't be, you, know, you should be all be driven by yourself anyway. Yeah. Um, it just means that you really then have to focus. Focus is so then critical, right? Focusing your time, focusing your energy, focusing your resources, what are you investing in? Um, you know, if you're a young content creator and you're trying to become an influencer, be clear on where you're influencing and who you're influencing. Mm. Like if you're going to be big on TikTok, you know, you should probably also be big on YouTube, but maybe, you know, maybe 
not invest so much on one or two other things because that's not going to serve you. Or if you're really, really big on LinkedIn, like for example, me, like I chose to be, you know, really focus a lot of my energies on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. I am not doing TikTok because I don't have time, but also because I feel like that requires a whole new different thing. And that's going to distract me from like this, yeah. thing, right? So it's about focus. I think it's definitely about focus. Um, and then the other thing that I, I always say when it comes to like, you know, when it comes to this concept of, of branding is, is curiosity and compassion, right? Curiosity to con in, in, in a way that you're always sort of, you know, curious about how your brand is being activated and perceived, curious and how you yourself are perceiving your brand so that you're allowing it to evolve. Mm -hmm. But then also compassion for yourself and if it's not going well, <laughs> it's compassion that, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you're, we're all navigating in very difficult spaces. I think globally we're all are. And, um, you know, I think having compassion for, you know, for all the negotiations that all of us have to go through when we are talking about our brand, especially when we're talking about our personal brand, yep. um, you know, and, and, and being compassionate with ourselves, compassionate with other people. Um, and I know that's not necessarily a business term, but <laughs> I will say that there is a lot of conversations right now in corporate spaces about creating more, I'd say, compassionate and kind spaces that allow us to not be burnt out, that allow us to you know, take away in a sort of distraction so that we can, you know, really, really find what we're passionate about, or at least find what we're good at, you know, without having to be distracted, you know, by uh, a lot of other different things. And, mm -hmm. and I think having compassion for that sort of like, um, you know, process is really, really key. Um, and at the same time, you know, one thing I say in my book a lot is this idea of, um, you know, leaving a space more welcoming than how you find it. Um, I think that's true of corporate spaces. That's true of any space in which we find ourselves where we are safe to be who we are. But I think that's absolutely also true of brand now to come to think about it, right? Um, we try to create our brands in such a way that we put it into a community, into an audience, into a market in which it can thrive, right? Mm -hmm. And if we find that we're, that that brand is and that product is able to thrive, then let's make sure that we create, you know, a space around that brand so that other people can thrive along with it, right? That other creators and other strategists and other creatives can also, um, you know, you know, be inspired by it and and also then, you know, be be allowed to to have the same uh, kind of success and and and, and measure of thriving um, that you know whatever brand it is uh, has had that success can have. I must confess, this was an absolutely amazing podcast because I got to learn from another accomplished expert. Thank you, Michael, for talking today about branding from a completely unique perspective. It gave me a lot of uh, thinking to do about my own brand, Talking With Experts podcast, and maybe how it's being perceived by others. Thank you again for talking about how a global brand is built exactly like a personal brand and how we need to be more curious, compassionate, inclusive, and um, express ourselves in a unique way. For anybody who is interested or wants to learn more about Michael and the wisdom of Gunkles, his book, then please go over to thewisdomofgunkles.com to grab yourself a copy. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next week for another episode, another fantastic guest, and hopefully some takeaways to take action on your business.